Would you please take your copy of God's Word? Let's turn together to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, our text begins in verse 31 and extends to the end of the chapter. As I mentioned uh, in the announcements and even in our pastoral prayer this morning, uh, next week we're so excited to have Erwin Ince and Ronnie Garcia with us, and Missions Conference occurs at a good time, um, particularly as we're going through John's Gospel. We've completed the chapter, we'll have Missions Conference, and then on the 27th we'll pick up on chapter 6. It may not surprise you, but as a process person, it bothers me to have a chapter interrupted. Uh, So we get to the end of chapter 5, that's super good. But as we come here to the end of chapter 5, what we find is this is the second part of what is Jesus' longest uninterrupted discourse in the entirety of John's gospel, as he is responding of sorts to uh, to the Jews' criticism, but more their desire to kill him uh, because he has made himself equal with God. Um, He continues to demonstrate through these trustworthy witnesses that he is in fact exactly who he is, who he claims to be. Uh, and, and because he is exactly who he claims to be, the Jews' rejection of, them, of him puts them in real spiritual danger. But that's a message not just for them 2,000 years ago. That's a message for you and me. That if we don't heed the, te- the trustworthy witnesses that we have in Holy Scripture and in those who proclaim the Word of God, we are in spiritual danger And so perhaps we need to ask God this morning to help us, to give us ears to hear the good news this morning of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Would you pray with me then? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do bless you for your kindness to us, that you do not abandon us. Um, You do not leave us in the place of danger, but rather you pursue us, and you pursue us especially through these means of grace, and especially through the ministry of the Word. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come. Uh, that you would use your word in our lives. Open our eyes this morning that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the witness that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another 
And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's likely this morning you know the name Lee Strobel, but if you don't know that name, let me, let me tell you a little bit about his story. Strobel was trained at one of the best journalism schools in our country, trained at the University of Missouri, and, and after that he went on to Yale Law and received a master's degree in legal studies. And, and with his journalism background and his legal studies, uh, he was able to put that together to get his dream job, really a plum job, to serve as, as legal affairs correspondent for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, as a young man, Strobel was a professed atheist, and his unbelief actually reinforced his dissolute lifestyle. He basically lived a wild life and didn't think there was a God there to hold him account. But one day, his wife, Leslie, through a friendship with another woman in their condo complex, this woman led his wife, Leslie, to Christ. And, and suddenly, Leslie wanted to go to church. And so Lee agreed to go to church with her. And they, they ended up going to Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago, where the pastor, Bill Hybels, was, was going through a series on basic Christianity. Well, Strobel was challenged by those messages, but, but the challenge that he took up was the desire to try to debunk Christianity, to try to prove that Christianity was in fact untrue. And he decided to use the, the skills that he had learned as a journalist to try to debunk Christianity. Now, of course, that meant gathering the evidence, and, and he quickly understood through, through the evidence he could discern that, that central to Christianity was the resurrection of Christ. Well, as he began to look at the evidence, and as he tried to debunk the Bible's evidence for Jesus' resurrection, he kept struggling with a key piece of evidence that he came across. What was the witnesses? The number of witnesses. The quality of those witnesses. The unexpected nature of some of those witnesses. Strobel began to conclude that this many people claiming to see Jesus alive bodily in the flesh, they couldn't be wrong. And so through those trustworthy witnesses, Strobel came to faith in Jesus Christ and has proven to be a, an effective defender of Christianity. Some of you have read his book, The Case for Christ. And he, he came to Christ and, and to believe in Jesus all through trustworthy witnesses. Of course, that's not unusual, if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, more than likely you have believed in Jesus because of some trustworthy witness who pointed you to him. It could have been a parent or a pastor. It could have been a friend or, or co-worker or someone that you met at a church softball team or, or a civic organization. But it could have been the Bible itself. You, you might have went and bought a Bible to read it on your own, to explore the claims of Christianity, or perhaps you read the Bible with a friend. But, but it's likely that, that if you're sitting here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, it's because of the trustworthy witness of someone else who ultimately led you to receive and rest upon Jesus as he was offered to you in the gospel. 
what we have before us this morning here in this passage in John 5 is something very much along this line. On the one hand, it appears that Jesus is like a defendant, bringing his witnesses forward to defend himself, to defend himself against the Jews, to demonstrate that he, in fact, is exactly who he says he is. But actually, what's going on here in this passage is actually slightly different. Jesus isn't the defendant. He's the prosecutor. He's the prosecutor toward these Jews, these Pharisees who wanted to kill him. These witnesses that he presents are meant to to hold them accountable. Because if what these witnesses are saying is in fact true, these men, these, these religious leaders, these seminary professors, they were in terrible danger. They were in danger of rejecting the only way to God the Father. They were in danger of crucifying the Lord of glory. They were in danger of killing God himself. Of course, that's not the danger just for these men in this story. That's our present danger right now. If if we reject the trustworthy witnesses that Jesus presents to us, if, if we reject Jesus then we are actually in danger of the resurrection of judgment that we talked about last week. The the resurrection of judgment in which Jesus, as the true judge of the world, would actually reject you for rejecting him, of sending you to a very real place called hell where you will experience the judicial wrath of God. That is a real and present danger. And it's a danger for those who might reject the trustworthy witness that we find here in this passage. But, but if in fact we receive the message of these witnesses, like Lee Strobel, like, like countless thousands, millions have done through the ages, like many of you have done, if we receive these trustworthy witnesses, then we will know life, eternal life, joyful resurrection life, because we've heard the trustworthy witnesses and believe the message. You see, Jesus, when he begins to speak of these witnesses, he observes that his own testimony is not valid for for establishing his claims. He says this in verse 31. Your, Your Bibles are open still. Look at it. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. It doesn't mean that his testimony is false. It's simply that in in a Jewish mind and in Jewish courts, a single person's testimony, especially that of a defendant, say, is not enough in establishing the claims. Now, Jewish law required at least two witnesses to establish any claim in court. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, observe, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong, in connection with any offense that he has committed. And so, Someone's testimony needed to be supplemented with with two more witnesses. Accordingly, Jesus will cite other trustworthy witnesses who establish that he is, in fact, exactly who he claims to be. And, And the first witness he brings forward is John. You see in verse 33, he says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the witness that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a a while in his light. You see, here Jesus is reminding the Jews, they actually sent 
to John. We read that earlier in John's gospel, in, in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. The Jews sent scribes and priests to John, and, and they asked him who he was. They, they asked him for his testimony. And John clearly told them that he was not the Messiah, that there was one coming who was, in fact, not only the Messiah, but God himself, able to baptize them, not with water, but with the very Holy Spirit. And then the following day, after telling these scribes and priests that he is not the Messiah, that there was one coming, the very next day, John sees Jesus. Remember, we, we saw this in John chapter 1. John sees Jesus, and he points him out and says in a loud voice so everyone can hear, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I said, the one who comes after me was actually before me. And bearing witness in that way, he not only says Jesus was the substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, but he's also saying that this one who comes after me, who's before me, he's actually the eternal one. He's actually God himself. That's why Jesus calls John a shining and burning lamp. Just as a lamp producing light produces both illumination and warmth, John's testimony, his witness serve to bring light, to illuminate, but also to warm the hearts of those who received it. And for a while, Jesus says, they rejoiced in what he said. For those who trusted John's message, as Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel did, as they trusted his message and went to follow Jesus to put their trust in the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, they were saved. They were rescued, rescued from their sin and sinning. So the question then, when Jesus brings John forward and reminds the Jews that they sent to get the truth from John, the, the question that Jesus is implicitly asking the Jews is, why did you send for John's testimony? Why did you ask him to tell the truth and then refuse to believe him? I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's a real problem to, to ask John point blank, tell the truth about this. And John does. He tells the truth about himself, about his mission, about the one who's coming, and then they refuse to believe the testimony. And yet, is it possible that, that you could do the same thing? I mean, I think we do. I think we do it all the time. Where we ask someone, please tell me the truth about this situation. And then we tell the truth about this situation, and we say, yeah, I don't believe you. I'm going to believe these stories. I'm going to believe these lies. I'm going to believe what I see on TV, what I read on the internet, rather than hear the truth about this situation. Or even more, and more significant, more important, some of you actually have grown up in this church from, from littlest days and cradle roll all the way through student ministry, and now you're a young adult, and you've heard the truth over and over and over again, whether it was from John Sartell or from Richie Sessions or from, from me or from the other pastors, you've heard the truth over and over again. You've heard it from your parents. You've heard it from the, your student ministry leaders. You've heard it from Sunday school teachers. You've heard the truth, the trustworthy witness, and still you refuse to believe. You refuse to receive that trustworthy witness. You refuse to entrust yourself to Jesus to receive and rest upon him as he's been offered to you in the gospel. Fred, are you any better than these Jews? I mean, 
And yet, Jesus not only points to John as a, as a trustworthy witness, he actually brings forward a second witness, doesn't he? One that's even greater, even better. His second better witness, of course, is his father. In verse 32, Jesus had actually hinted that God the Father was his main witness. He makes that explicit in verse 36. Look at it. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And then he goes to speak about his voice. So when, when Jesus brings the Father forward as his second and greater witness, he does so in a twofold way. First, Jesus points to the fact that the works that Jesus is doing, they're actually the Father's works. Right? That's what he says in verse 36. And you've heard Jesus say that before in John's gospel. In fact, when Jesus says this in verse 36, he's doubling down on the claim that he made just a few verses earlier. In chapter 5, verse 17, when, when he said, My Father is always working, and I am working. And, and the Jews heard that claim in chapter 5, verse 17, and they, they wanted to kill Jesus because he made himself equal to God. Well, here Jesus says, the works that I'm doing, they're actually my Father's works through me. Well, when Jesus said that, what does he mean? Well, it means that he himself is God. That, that Jesus and the Father are, in fact, one. It means that if you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. But Jesus goes further. He says, second, that, that the Father's voice is explicitly heard in his word. And his word serves as a witness to Jesus. The very word of God, the, the scriptures serve as a witness to Jesus. That's what he says in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so these two things, the Father's works done through Jesus, the Father's word, God's word, and the Holy Scriptures that testify to Jesus, these two things demonstrate that God the Father is in fact a trustworthy witness concerning Jesus, his Son. Now, of course, not everything in Scripture is, is obvious and clear. Not everything is plain. But, but the main lines of witness certainly are. When you look at the Scriptures that Jesus would have known, the Old Testament, what do you find? You find that the Old Testament over and again promises that there was going to be a son of Abraham, a son of David who was going to come, who was going to be Messiah, but even more, he was going to be a divine figure, one ruling on David's throne, but ruling on that throne forever. Psalm 2 would tell you that this one who was established on Zion's hill was in fact God's son, his anointed one, who would rule over the nations. We heard it in the call to worship this morning. That this messianic figure, this king like David, who was going to come, was going to rule from sea to sea. He was going to deliver the oppressed and bring about righteousness and peace. The Old Testament, over and again, these scriptures pointed forward to Jesus and established that, in fact, if you reject the Father's word, if you rejected the Father's witness, if you rejected the Father's witness along with John's witness, you were in trouble. 
There's real spiritual danger. That's why Jesus is going to to move to warn these Jews. But he's not just warning these Jews 2,000 years ago. No, he's also warning you and me. Friend, there is real spiritual eternal danger for those who reject the clear witness of John and the Father, especially contained in Holy Scripture. Of course, there's part of you that wonders, why would anyone do this? I mean, don't you wonder that? I mean, why do people reject the message of the gospel? Why do people reject the trustworthy witness that God has given us in Holy Scripture that points us to Jesus? How can anyone live without Jesus? Well, it has all to do with glory. It has all to do with glory. I mean, that's what Jesus says. Look at it. He says in verse 41, he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, in the context, what is Jesus saying here? Well, he's telling the Jews that he's not dependent on glory from people. That is, the worth, the value, the praise, the glory that others might give to Jesus doesn't establish Jesus' identity. It doesn't set him in the right before God. It doesn't justify him before God. Now, we've already heard in John's gospel, Jesus' glory is not outside of him. It's not extrinsic to him. It's not something that others would give to him. Jesus' glory is actually intrinsic to him. It's actually part and parcel of his character and nature, part and parcel of his very nature. John tells us in, in the beginning of the gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus doesn't need the glory from from others. It's not extrinsic to him, but rather he is glory. He's able to stand before God because he is God. But that's not the case for the Jews. And that's not the case for you and me. Not because of our sin and our sinning, but especially because of our sin natures received from Adam and Eve through the generations to this very day, we don't bear glory on the inside. We don't have glory intrinsically. We need to be justified. We need to be declared in the right. We need to have glory established outside of ourselves and given to us. That's why Jesus will tell these Jews that they they receive glory from one another. In others, they look to one another for their identity. Look to one another for justification for establishing themselves they look to one another for glory so that i might receive my glory from you as you praise me and i might establish your identity and give glory to you as i praise you and how might we gain glory how might we gain praise from one another through their doing it was through their doing and their climbing of god's law that they demonstrated they were on a glory quest that they were in fact as luther calls them and others. They were, in fact, theologians of glory, seeking to establish themselves on their own merits, through their own morality and their own doing. But, but this isn't true just of the Jews. Friends, you and I, we're no different. 
We are inveterate theologians of glory. We desperately want glory from others. We want praise. We want weight. We want affirmation. We want justification that comes from each other. We want others to say of us that we are moral good people, that we have good hearts and we do good things. And so because of that, we, we climb the ladder of the law. We try desperately through our own effort and our own working to, to demonstrate that, in fact, we are the good people that we want other people to believe we are so that they might give us glory and we might stand justified to ourselves and to the world and maybe even before God. And so we keep climbing, don't we? We keep climbing the ladder. We keep trying to do. We keep trying to perform. We keep trying to pretend. We keep trying to do what we think God requires of us, and we're fierce in defending our reputations. If someone were actually to, to raise questions about us, we're fierce in defending our loyalties and friendships because that's the only way we can get the glory we most desperately desire and need. We want to be independent before God, and yet we're desperately dependent upon the opinions of others. Friends, we are all theologians of glory. And the danger is that's going to send us straight to hell. That's Jesus' warning. Jesus' warning to you and me this morning is that if we are reliant upon the glory that comes from others, no matter what our profession may be, if we are reliant upon being justified in other people's sight, and so we establish our stance before God based on our own doing and what others say about us, we are in danger of hell. There's only one way that the glory that we do in fact need in order to stand before God, a glory that's outside of us, might actually be granted to us that will actually stand on judgment day. There's only way, one way that comes to us. And it comes from God to us by way of the cross. Now, it, it may not be obvious to us that Jesus is speaking of the cross in this passage I think it's there, even if it's a little oblique, when Jesus says in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's only one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Did you hear it? If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So the question, what did Moses write about Jesus? And how did it connect to the cross? Well, Moses wrote about the promise that God made to Abraham, right? That's Genesis chapter 12. It's the first of the five books that Moses wrote. And there Moses recorded that God promised to Abraham that he would have a great name and be a great nation, and that through his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. A little bit later, one of the grandsons of Abraham would receive more promises from God about which Moses wrote. To Judah, Moses wrote that God promised that the, that the scepter would not depart from his family until tribute came, and to him, to his family, to his offspring belonged the obedience of the nations. Moses wrote about a future provision of a prophet, just like Moses, to whom the people should listen. He wrote about a future king who's coming, who would embody God's law perfectly. But above all, Moses wrote in the very center of the five books of Moses, in Leviticus chapter 16, he wrote about God's provision of sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, 
when the high priest would present the, the blood from a spotless lamb at the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies that would cover the sins of the people. But Moses went further because Moses wrote about a provision that would not just cover but cure because Jesus told us in John chapter 3 that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness and so that people looked at the serpent even though they had poison in their veins, the poison of the snake vine in their veins, when they looked at the snake, they lived. In the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up between heaven and earth on the cross on the day we call Good Friday. And when sinners look at Jesus Christ in faith, the poison, the contagion called sin in their veins, cured. Cured. God's forgiveness and grace and glory come to us from outside of us because we looked in faith to Jesus who died for us on the cross. All this Moses wrote. As God's witness, it's a trustworthy testifier. As God's witness, Moses points us to the one way to God, the one way to be right with him, the one way to be justified, the one way to have glory that we might bear, that might stand on judgment day. We'll hear Jesus say later in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, get off your ladder. Get off your attempts, set aside your attempts to somehow gain glory from others that will establish you before God. Set aside your attempts to be good moral people because, friends, you are not a good moral person. You're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. So set aside all these attempts to try to climb the ladder, to gain glory, and instead trust these trustworthy witnesses whose lives have been changed, not just the trustworthy witnesses you find in Holy Scripture, but the trustworthy witnesses in this room who can tell you what Jesus has done for them when they stopped their trying and their efforts and instead rested upon and received Jesus as he was offered to them in the gospel. Certainly examine the evidence for yourself. Hear the trustworthy witnesses for yourself, just like Lee Strobel. But what you will find if you do is that these witnesses are in fact trustworthy and true. And this Jesus of whom we speak he stands ready to save you, no matter what you've done. Jesus, ready, stands to save you. He is willing. Doubt no more. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you that in this gospel passage, you invite us once again to come to you. We come to you Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We come to you, uh, sinners as we are, weak and wounded, sick and sore, believing that the witnesses are true, that what Holy Scripture teaches us is true, that you stand ready to save us, and that through your cross there is forgiveness and righteousness, right standing with you, just glory, the glory we desperately long for. It's all ours for the asking. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends that today, whether for, for the first time or the 10,000th time, that they might rest their hearts in you, that they might get off the ladder of the law and their own striving, and they might seek you. Nothing in their hands they bring, 
Only to the cross they cling. Lord, grant this would be so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hand.